Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ozil. Marca Mesut Ozil. Bellerín, otro defensor, otro disparo, Monreal, gol. Marca el futbolista español, marca Nacho Monreal. Pim, pam, pum. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly evening to you. We're doing this on Sunday evening. Yes, we are. And you're back. You're I am back in yeah, Dublin. I am back. Only just back this afternoon. Just picked the dogs up and took them out for a walk. And they're very happy to be back on home soil and, uh, you know, racketing around the house and everything else. So, yeah, just back this evening and straight back behind the microphone because that's the kind of dedicated professional person I am. That is incredibly professional of you. Mm. Uh, how did you, was it weird? Did you listen to the Arsecast on Friday that you weren't on? Yes, I did. And it was really strange because one of the things that <laughs> when I go on holidays, it's I always enjoy reading the blog, you know, so yeah. t- Tom and Andrew were Andrew Allen were filling in and that's great. And I, I um I always read it and I always find it enjoyable as a reader, but I've never done that before. This was the first time that the Arsecast had gone out without me on it. We've done like the odd holiday podcast and what have you. So Noah, that was entertaining as well. It's like a whole new dimension of Arsblog for me. So thank you for, thank you for filling in. Uh, I thought you did a great job. It was my pleasure. It was my pleasure. But it did strike me that must be the first one that you've not been on in any form. An Andrew yeah. Free Arsecast. Yeah. Oh, strange. I mean, let's hope it's not happening again anytime soon. Mm. It was. I found it quite <laughs> weird doing it without you, I must say. Quite a lonely experience. It is. It's different, you know, because I know when I when we do these ones, we just sit down and we open the mics and we start talking and it takes us wherever we, we want to go. But when you do the, the regular Arsecast, you know, I can sort of start something and do four or five minutes, sometimes more than that, and then think, well, that's shit. And I stop and I do it again, <laughs> yeah. you know, until you go in a direction that you're happy with. So I do know exactly. I do know exactly what you mean. James, I've got some terrible news for you, though. Unfortunately. Oh, no. What is it? Look, I, I am a man of my I word. I mean, I feel like I know, what, I know already what it's going to be. Hello. It's so early in the podcast as well for it to deflate <laughs> like this. <laughs> you, you know, I, I would never Welsh on a bet. Never in my life. Sure. So before I left Barcelona, I purchased the biggest bag of ham on ruffles that I could find. <laughs> now, okay. you might want to. So put, far, so good. So far, so good. You might want to put this in the dog ate my homework category of things, but genuinely, the bag burst all over my suitcase, and I got home, and everything was more or less covered with ham on ruffles. So, 
I'm going to have to find a workaround for this at some point. Uh, the the bag I that I was going to send you is now, well, I mean, I could still send it to you, but they'd be stale, and many of them are crushed beyond recognition as actual ruffles. Presumably, what, this is something to do with the air pressure or something. It's just the bag couldn't handle the shift in pressure, and it's exploded. I think it, I think it could have just been a, a badly packed bag as well. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. That does seem more plausible, actually. Yeah. Um, and so do now all your clothes smell of hammer ruffles? Because there could be an upside to this. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that could be why the dogs are so interested in my suitcase. Like I'm back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's it. Anyway, look, I will I will make it up to you, I promise. And I didn't I didn't not think of of uh, filling in on that bet that you won when you said Petr Cech mm. would, would start in goal. So. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. But you, you watched the game in Barcelona, is that right? I did. I went to this Irish bar called the Irish, no, the Wild Rover, right down the bottom of the Ramblas, because that was the only place that, that uh, I knew for sure that it was going to be on. So I went right. down there, and uh, it was really strange. I was sitting behind or in front of two or three Arsenal fans who were interested in the game and I met a an Ars blog fan there whose name I now can't remember and I apologize and I know he'll be listening to this but I did meet him and his lovely wife slash girlfriend and had a good chat with them um and but in the bar you know Irish bars and English bars in Barcelona particularly at weekends they tend to attract how will I put this the stag party crew you know that sure. way so sure, the, sure, sure. there was a stag party there. Now they had Arsenal on one TV, they had the Barcelona game on another TV, they had the Chelsea game on another TV, the Man City game on another TV. This place was quite busy, but there was Ooh. this group of lads and they seemed to be playing this weird game from the moment I walked in to the moment I left. And they were doing this, they were all standing around kind of in a circle and they'd like hold their fingers over their eyes. They'd make circles over their eyes. No, kind of like okay. that Deli Alley ridiculous... Um, oh, that thing. The, kind yeah, of, that thing. But not like that. Just normal, like hold your thumb and forefinger over your eyes like you're wearing spectacles or something. But they were all making sure. the noise of a chicken. <laughs> Seriously. Right? They, 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 they'd be like, they'd be blah, 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 and then they'd be like, bark, bark, bark. and then whoever was next in the game had to go, bark, bark. and it went on for the duration of the entire Arsenal game. And it was quite weird and surreal watching a football game with that going on in the background. And you're thinking, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you know, five minutes or two minutes or whatever of that, but like two hours of it. I don't know what was going on there at all. I mean, to be fair, you have complained to me in the past about not enjoying listening to commentators. So maybe... Would you rather have Stuart Robson or would you rather have a, a group of chickens? Oh, there's a, there's a tough question. We did have That's the one commentary. for the second part of the show, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those, would you rather? We did have the commentary. It was on Sky Sports because I think it was on Sky Sports in Ireland and they had an Irish Sky box. So we had a normal Sky commentary and everything else. But uh, right. yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was an okay view. I had a good view of the screen. I had a good view of the game. Um it's, it's sort of strange these days to watch an Arsenal game without it involving work of some kind, you know? If it's not a match yeah. report or a live blogger or something like that. So to sort of watch it in a, in a different way. And after 45 minutes, I have to admit, I can't say I was necessarily enjoying myself or enjoying what we were doing. 
Yeah, and it must be difficult as well because you're on holiday, you know, you've got a finite amount of time in Barcelona and, you know, you're dedicating it to watching this game. And I could see at 45 minutes where you might have thought, you know, I'm going to go out and get some tapas or something like that. <laughs> uh, well, no, I actually, I was I was feeling a bit unwell on uh, Saturday, having eaten something that didn't agree with me on Friday. And I see. if anyone tells you, or if anyone wants to uh, pontificate on what the best drugs in the world are, they can go on about cocaine, they can talk about heroin, or PCP, or LSD, or marijuana, or whatever the hell they like, or whatever ecstasy, whatever else they can come up with, they can synthesize to make a human feel good. Nothing beats Imodium. <laughs> <laughs> I can guarantee. It is, I mean, yeah, it is a very valuable drug, isn't it? it, it, it when, in, is. in times of need, its its powers are remarkable. Oh, we are very, very grateful for we them. We are. Thank you very much indeed, Imodium. So I, I didn't even have a drink in the bar. I was just drinking uh, mineral water to to try and replenish some electrolytes or whatever the fuck. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, 45 minutes, not particularly great. I did notice, you know, on Twitter, I was keeping an eye on Twitter and and uh, obviously listened to the to the Arscast on Friday, in which uh, you you spoke about how it was most definitely time for Torreira, and yes. then it wasn't time for Torreira. Um, I mean, I what? mean, I, I just, as soon as I you know did the podcast and put that out, I was like, I mean, he won't be starting this game, will he? I mean, it's absolutely inevitable. <laughs> so, I've jinxed that well and truly. There was talk, well, not talk. It's a it's a fact. I don't know why. I, dismissed it as talk but he picked up an injury didn't yeah. he on international duty a calf problem um, which maybe was a factor but he didn't it didn't look like a factor in that 45 minutes that he did play. No, it didn't. And, you know, we, we spoke a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, about these early changes by Unai Emery and mm. whether they're a manager being decisive or whether it's an indication of him getting it wrong. And, you know, I looked at the stats and I've seen the the fact that Matteo Genduzzi did, uh, he completed 39 of 40 passes or whatever it was. He was very tidy in midfield. But there's no question in my mind that when Torreira came on, we were better. And it was different. And we were able to, to create space and to create pressure that we weren't able to create when Genduzi was in the midfield with Xhaka. And, you know, Genduzi didn't do very much wrong. But I don't think you can look at that 45 minutes, at the two 45 minutes in isolation and not think we were much better in the second half than we were in the first. How much of it is down to Torreira? That's the, the question, I guess. Yeah, I mean, other players improved, didn't they? It wasn't just Torreira coming on, I think. You know, the, the likes of Ramsey and Ozil and uh, I think Aubameyang, Lacazette, they, the, the front four were much better in that half. But after the game, Unai Emery spoke about our positioning on the pitch. He seemed really keen to stress that he felt in the first half, our positioning on the pitch wasn't right. And I think he spoke about it more from an attacking respect than a defensive one. What do you think he um, means by that, our positioning on the pitch in terms of... Because you see him on the sideline and he is... He does a lot of pointing. He does a lot of that, you know, where he holds one finger up and another finger up just behind it. And he's sort of, you know, mm -hmm. doing that. And he's, he's obviously trying to get some kind of a message across to the players. But, you know, to me... Watching that first half, I didn't see anything, um, any of the stuff that the players keep talking about and the manager keeps talking about in terms of how we want to play football. 
it, it seemed very uh, indiscriminate in a way. We looked really uncomfortable in possession at times, and that's not something you associate normally with, with an Arsenal team, particularly one under Arsene Wenger for all our failings. We were always pretty comfortable on the ball unless we were being pressed by a really, really good team. So if you're playing Man City or you're playing Barcelona, it's more difficult. But generally speaking, against somebody like Newcastle, we would take uh, a lot of possession and we'd be comfortable in it. And it feels to me just at the moment that teams are able to make us um, hesitant or or I don't quite know how to, to describe it, but we don't look as assured as we should. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that goes right back to the goalkeeper, maybe. You know, I mean, mm. that's the, uh, the big change that is evident in the team, the one that everyone's talked about plenty. The one thing we can really see is the fact that we're playing out from the back and maybe that bit of nervousness, a bit of uncertainty that seems to exist between the centre-halves and the goalkeeper kind of transmits itself to the rest of the team. Mm. I, I just thought that looking at that first half, I felt like our central midfield were fine, but they didn't control the game in any respect. Uh, and, I, you know, Granite Xhaka is someone who can be so metronomic and so key to controlling the tempo of the football we play and helping us progress up the pitch. It didn't seem like he was sort of managing to do that. And Genduzzi, although his numbers are pretty good coming out of the game, I mean, his accuracy is really high as a percentage. I think that speaks a little bit to maybe a touch of conservatism from him in his passing. There was a few occasions where it looked like there was a slightly more ambitious ball on. Mm. And that's not something that, you know, he hasn't done in the past. We know he's got that in his locker, but I just felt yeah. like in this game, they were playing it a little bit too simple at times. But it was a, it was a bad first half. And at half time, I'm sure, you know, I wasn't alone in feeling like this is sort of, what I've become a little this feels like one of those Arsenal away performances I've seen a lot of in in the past 12 months you yeah. know it's just not quite coming together and Newcastle I think if they were better going forward might have taken more advantage of some of the opportunities we gave them I know they only finished the game with about four shots but you know there was a a, a vulnerability about us in that first half mm. um and they didn't really have the quality to exploit it. Yeah, you know what struck me during the first half was, you know, for all the talk of Arsenal's uh, system under Unai Emery being a high-press system, mm. we were the ones being pressed rather than doing the pressing. And the press worked yeah. for Newcastle uh, far more than it did for us, um, which, again, wasn't really, wasn't really that evident. You know, they did work hard and they did make it very difficult. And we know that Rafa Benitez is a coach who can set his teams out to, to frustrate and to negate the qualities of, of opposition sides. But I found it quite hard to understand what, what exactly we were trying to do in the first half. I couldn't, I couldn't see, for example, in that first half... What I saw in the Chelsea game when we came to life and when we worked dangerous positions in that first half in particular against Chelsea where I thought we produced some of the best attacking moments, some of the best final third combinations that we've seen so far this season. And I thought we would see a bit more of that as the season went on. And I'm not sure we, we quite have yet. Well, I mean, is that partly because the, the the main combination that was beneficial to us in in that game was the one between Henrik Mkhitaryan and Hector Bellerin? Yeah, and we we haven't really seen that uh, much of that since then, have we? I no. mean, he didn't play at uh, Cardiff and didn't play at Newcastle, um, and, and instead we've got Meza Özil playing on the right hand side, 
I mean, I say playing on the right-hand side, he's sort of isn't, is he? I mean, Hector Bellerin is doing that kind of, that job of, well, you've got the whole right flank to yourself. Yeah. And uh, I mean, in the first half, that made him look a bit exposed on occasion. But I mean, that's absolutely inevitable, isn't it? Yeah. And and the other feeling I got when I looked at the the team in the first half and really kind of throughout the game was a kind of a square peg round holes situation where too many players, you don't quite know where exactly they're supposed to be and what their role is. So Obama yeah. Yang, for example, on the left, uh, Ozil on the right, Ramsey, wherever it is that Ramsey is, you know, which can work to great effect at times, but when it doesn't, it really doesn't. And I think in the first half in particular, that was that was very much the case, apart from the, the one moment where he got in and then uh, completely miskicked his cross. It was a, a terrible cross when he should have played the ball to, was it, would it, it would have been Aubameyang, wouldn't it? It was Aubameyang at the far post. Yeah, so yeah. there we have Ramsey popping up on the left-hand side of the attack to cross for Aubameyang, who's ostensibly playing on the left-hand side, to, to score at the back post, which is, you know, closer to the right-hand side. So Maybe there is some method to the madness or or what we're seeing, but it's hard to work it out. I suppose, you know, the great Arsenal attacks of the past have had players who interchanged positions. You know, the amount of times you'd see Thierry Henry pop on the left and Robert Pires appear in the centre, you know, it's countless. But yeah, yeah I, I know what you mean. I, I felt particularly... I felt it particularly with Ramsey and Ozil. You know, it looked to me like the formation... We talk about it as a four-two-three-one, but it's a little bit like a kind of four-two-two-two as well, because mm. Aubameyang's got that license to go forward from yeah. the left, and Ramsey and Özil are operating in that creative space. But it just felt like in the first half there wasn't much clarity about their roles, yeah, uh, and it was all a bit vague and all a bit haphazard. And you know, I know we speak about these Emery changes at half time, but I suspect that as much as bringing Torreira on for Gunduzi was a big moment. Surely words were had as well about, you know, those roles and trying to be a little yeah. bit more specific. That, because it felt like we were a different side. In the sure. Game. I mean, I think that's fair. You know, you can talk about the influence that Torreira had, but also the fact that we were pretty poor in the first half and there would have been some kind of need to address that via performance or work levels or, or whatever, you know, the positioning on the pitch, as, as Emery talked about, some other things that we did that might have changed the way that we played. Uh, Torreira was involved, I think, in the first goal, playing a forward pass. Aubameyang picked it up, got fouled. And, um, well, what can you say about the Granit Xhaka free kick? Fantastic. You know, you, yeah. you always feel like he has that in his locker. Uh, and he pulled it out this time. I mean, we, we haven't seen it before. Is that the first free kick I think he scored for us? I can't remember another one. He's certainly got a few goals from range, hasn't mm. he? But I don't know from a dead ball. I, 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 you touched on it there, but I think that forward pass from Torreira into Aubameyang is quite significant. Match of the day actually picked up on it. I don't know if people oh, watched I that. But if, I haven't seen that uh, yet. Yeah, well, no. They mentioned it because it was one of the first things he did on the pitch and... He he played a couple of passes like that within five minutes of coming on. And that's what I mean when I mentioned Gunduzi. There were a couple of occasions where he was a little bit more careful, looked sideways, whereas Torreira was always looking forward. And if it meant playing a, a fast pass between two players that had a slight risk of being intercepted, he was prepared to take that risk. He had the technical quality to do it. And it was a, a neat ball into Aubameyang and a brilliant hit from Shaka. I mean... Yeah, look, as he lined up to take it, I was thinking, I mean, this is a long way out, but maybe. And it's a fantastic strike. Bends brilliantly into the top corner. Um, and a great 
sort of addition to our threat if he's going to, you know, take over set pieces from the range and try and do a couple more of those. I mean, you're not going to score many a season, but it's worth a crack. Yeah, it sure is. You know, I think the the other player who was looking at it was Torreira. Uh, I think it's quite yeah. interesting as well. I, I don't know if this is deliberate or if it's, you know, uh, you would presume it is, but Mesut Ozil is not taking a lot of the set pieces anymore. Um, there was a free True. kick out wide left, which was normally in the kind of position that you'd expect Ozil to take it, and Xhaka took it and didn't really come to anything. But it just occurred to me at that moment that Ozil wasn't taking, wasn't taking the uh, the, the set piece. But Mesut Ozil got the goal, and I think when you look at the when you look at the second goal, it is in some way a kind of a hark back to the kind of chances that we created in that Chelsea game where we have a player, we work the ball in behind, this time it's Granit Xhaka not somebody who you normally put towards uh, the byline but Granit Xhaka gets to the byline, pulls it back, Lacazette shot is saved and I think uh, rebounds to, rebounds to Mesut Ozil, I have a suspicion that the goalkeeper would be quite unhappy that that ball went in but uh, nice to see Ozil on the score sheet. Yeah and he adjusted his feet very well because it sort of headed yeah. More almost towards his right foot, but as we know, that's not really an option for Mesut, or not one that he likes to take too often. And it's it's quite classy the way he just sort of gives a little shuffle, adjusts his positioning to take it with his left. And I think he he sort of catches the keeper off guard a bit by doing that. But I agree, he'll be a little bit disappointed. He might even be disappointed on the free kick. He almost got there, but. Um, yeah, it's a great finish from Ozil and nice to see him score at a stadium where he's sort of infamous for not turning up. Yeah, sure. And you feel like that's something he needs in a way, isn't it? You yeah. know, after all the spotlight, after all the talk about everything else that's gone on, you know, to get a goal, you know, every player uh, is affected by confidence in one way or the other. He, You know, we spoke about it last week, maybe or the week before, where he doesn't look like the confident Mesut Ozil that we've seen in the past. So something that gives him a gives him a bit of a boost is not only good for him, but good for the team. Yeah, definitely. And, it, you know, it's 10 scorers for the season as well now. 10 yeah. goals, 10 scorers. No one's even got two. So that's, I mean, I suppose a positive thing. You'd like to see your strikers racking up a few more than that by now, maybe. But mm. uh, at least we're not reliant on one player. I suppose going into the season, there would have been a worry that we would have been very reliant on someone like Aubameyang for goals. But yeah. it's not been the case. No, I think it's good. I think a team that can spread the goals around as long as they create the chances, it is a, it is a good thing. You know, uh, it's brilliant also if you have a 30, 35 goal a season striker. Don't get me wrong. But if you can score goals from all over the place, then that is... That is definitely a, a positive thing. Were you expecting a bit more at two nil then, or yeah, yeah, I was yeah. at two nil because I, I forget the timing, but it felt like they came in relatively quick succession, and we were in complete control of the game. And I, I remember sort of thinking to myself, I mean, this could be a very handsome win. You know, this could be three or four. Um, it didn't really come to pass. I'm just trying to think now if there were any significant chances that we had after that point. I mean, I remember one for Mkhitaryan after he came on. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was a pretty tame effort. Aubameyang had one as well that he put wide. That's right, yeah, from a Lacazette pass. Uh, but there were not many that, that sort of stuck out. A Welbeck break a bit late on in the game, I think. Yeah. Um, he hit the side netting. So there were some, all right. But I, I thought maybe as Newcastle came out, we might we might find some space 
behind them. I thought we might exploit the fact that they had to come out at us rather than sit deep and, and defend and press the way they had been doing. But, you mm. know, again, it's five games. I can't avoid the the the... The cliche, if it is a cliche or if it's just a truism, that it is a work in progress. And we're seeing very incremental improvements in terms of uh, where we're going. I mean, it's three wins in a row. You can't argue with three wins in a row. I would have liked a clean sheet. That would have been another improvement. I was really disappointed to concede the goal. I know, you know, it's inconsequential in terms of the result. But, you know, we haven't got a clean sheet this season. Um and I think it would have been a, a big thing and a good thing for the defence. This was a game in which I was really the most impressed I've been by Socrates. Yes. Um, I thought he had a, a strong performance. This was, you know, I've, I've sort of, the jury's been out for me until now. Well, it's, it's, it is still out. It's early in his Arsenal career. But this was the game where I was most impressed by him. He, he was aggressive. He showed good recovery pace on a couple of occasions. Yeah. And I kind of wanted the clean sheet for... For him, as much as anything, but uh, it wasn't. To, it wasn't to be. Yeah. What did, did you think? He had a good game. Yeah, I did actually. I did. I was. Im- I was impressed by him as well. I think he bailed out Mustafi on one occasion, perhaps more than one occasion. Uh, he covered very well. He read the danger very well. Uh, you know, there was a Mustafi slip, or the the guy beat Mustafi, and he got in the box and got a tackle. There was one where he made a really good tackle, but it was an offside anyway. There was an, another moment where there was a kind of. Uh, there might have been danger or there might have been the risk of deciding, okay, let's play it out here. Let's maybe try and keep possession. And he was like, fuck this. I'm going to cunt it out for a corner and we can get organized and we we can defend the corner. I thought Mm -hmm. his decision-making was was really good. I thought his positioning was good. His reading of the game was good. You know, and Mustafi, I didn't think was that bad either, even though he had that like just absolutely ridiculous moment where where he just fell over. And there was another one where he got done way, way, way too easily down on the left-hand side. It could have been Jocelyn who went past him. You know, that's the thing with Mustafi. You're going to have those moments with him, as you know, as good as or solid as he might be for 90% of the game or even 95% of the game. There's always that danger. And perhaps we're seeing Socrates understand that his role isn't just to defend on his side, but also to ensure that when those things happen, someone is aware of them and can do something about them. Well, I think part of the reason we've signed him is to, but for his experience and his leadership, Mm. and it's difficult to come in on day one and be a leader of the team or or the back four, especially with players you don't know. So it's inevitable that... He'll sort of grow into that role with time, but uh, this was uh, this was a performance which made me think. Okay, I can see I can see what we were thinking with this guy. If he continues to perform like that, then it's a signing that you know makes it more sense to me. Yeah. Um, what did you think about the the goal, the Newcastle goal? Um, I thought it was the kind of goal you concede in injury time. That's what it felt yeah. like. I know there were, they, they'd had a chance, didn't they? They'd had a they'd had a chance previously to that. Petr Cech made a really good save from a header, um, but this was from mm. a corner. I watched it again today. I downloaded the game and watched it again, and I was looking to see exactly what went wrong. And it just looked to me like tired legs, 
we 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 cleared a corner. Bellerin cleared the corner, got a very good header on it at the near post, headed it away. They kept the ball in. We pushed up. I have a slight suspicion, even though I haven't watched it closely enough again, that they might have been offside before the I cross think it came is an offside. in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've watched it a few times because the, there's a flick on, isn't there, before yeah. the guy on the right wing gets it and. I think uh, if, if you know if the goal had mattered more, there probably would have been a bit more attention drawn to it. But I, I would call it offside. And then it's Bellerin is sort of caught high, isn't he? I mean, I don't mean to sort of single him out. I think he's sort of exhausted, presumably by that point, and they've yeah. got an overload of three on that back post. Yeah, exactly. They've also got like a centre half coming in, so it's not like yeah. uh, it's not like it was just the forwards there. You know, they did create that overlap by keeping men upfield. I think Bellerin was slow to get back. Um, the central defender's positions, I guess you can't really criticise too much. It's a fantastic cross and really good header at the back post. The guy attacked the ball very well. You know, I think it's disappointing to concede because I think we could have done with the clean sheet. Not only the defence, I think Petr Cech could do with the clean sheet as well. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, he's, what he's having to contend with at times with the ball coming back to him in ways that aren't necessarily comfortable. I know there was that moment, wasn't there, in the first half where he played the ball out, it went out for a corner. I think it was a terrible pass back to him from Mustafi. You know, I I, I expect maybe my goalkeeper to do better than that, but also I would expect my centre-half to do better uh, in giving the ball back to a goalkeeper when you know that he's had some problems with this and could do with the ball being played to him in the right areas and in the right way. I think it was a, it was a poor ball back. But I do think, aside from that, you know, aside from that part of what's going on, I think Petr Cech has been good this season. I think he's made really good saves. I think he's been commanding enough in his area when we're dealing with set pieces and high balls. And I can see why perhaps that's the reason he's in the team. Yeah, I mean, we faced a lot of uh, corners uh, on Saturday, didn't we? There were plenty of uh, set pieces from Newcastle and we survived those really pretty well. I thought Granit Xhaka did quite well in that respect, actually. You know, it struck me that one of the reasons that he might be picked for every game under Emery is his height. You know, he's he's someone who helps us a little bit from those defensive set pieces. He's not the best in the air, but he does win his fair share. Yeah, yeah, Xhaka, I think, has not put a hand wrong. This season. A hand, um, yes, being the operative word, of course. The hand being the operative word. Uh, we're going to see Bernd Leno probably on Thursday, almost certainly, in yeah. the Europa League. Uh, Emery was a little bit evasive about that in his press conference, but I mean, I think it's I think it's a cert. So that will be interesting to see how he copes with, you know, the, the types of passes he's receiving. I agree that Czech's not... He's not always done any favours by his centre-halves. Um, yeah, but is it becoming, you know, it felt like Newcastle approached the game thinking, well, that is a, a weak area for Arsenal. You know, they are going to play it out the back. We know they're going to do that. If we press, we might get some joy. Is it becoming a problem? You know, that it's something that's very, it's obviously evident to our opponents as much as it is to us. Well, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't you try and exploit that? I think the point is, though, is that you 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 get better at it. So mm. while you're getting better at it or while you improve, you have opponents who are pushing and pressing you higher up the pitch 
And if you're good enough, you can exploit that and find space behind them, right? So all of a sudden, you're facing an opposition team that's really stretched because they're pushed high and you know, you've bypassed their forwards or the two or three players who are doing the press, at which point you've got enough creativity perhaps to create chances and cause their defense problems. And then when yeah. you do get good at it, they're not going to press you that high up the pitch. I mean, I was watching the game on a stream. I think it was an NBC stream, a US TV stream, and I, I forget who the colour commentator was, but he said, you know, there's been all this talk about Czech playing it out from the back, but I don't see that he's even doing that. He's playing one pass to a centre-half, getting it back and then going long. And in my mind, I was like, well, I'm sure that that's probably what he's under instruction to do because the point of that first pass is to draw the press, to you know, to bring those mm. players closer so that when you then play the longer pass, you might have two or three Newcastle players out the game, caught up the field. Yeah. Um, and I thought he did that fairly well, apart from that one, that one notable moment, which was a little bit... He'd had a similar moment against Man City, didn't he, where he sort of tried to play the pass off his left boot and it yeah, went yeah. behind the goal. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I thought that the, uh, this was a game where, for the most part, I thought the defensive elements of the team were a little bit stronger than mm. they have been in recent games. Um, you know, I, I forget, I think it's four attempts Newcastle mustered in the whole game, which is a big difference from Cardiff. Yeah. Um, I felt like the bigger issue here was that kind of attacking combination play. And when you look at the front four, if you call it that, say Ramsey, Ozil, Aubameyang, Lacazette, the only one whose role I really understood and who I felt executed it correctly was Lacazette. Yeah. Yeah. He, he made sense in that team. He had a clear, defined role as the centre forward. He didn't get a lot of service, but yeah. he fought for everything. He fed off scraps. Uh, he was, you know, linking up the play, connecting things. I thought he did really, really well. But the rest was, particularly in the first half, confusing. And with players of that quality and that calibre, I think we are right to expect more. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I think it's a, it's a really good point. He was the typical center forward and th- this is where I was talking about square pegs and round holes kind of stuff yeah. with with what was going on, but you know, again, we have to it's so early on that we have to put everything in all kinds of context, don't we? That it's only the fifth game that we've played in the Premier League. It's the first game mm-hmm. back after an international break where, you know, we've been away for two weeks, more or less. We've come back, we've gone away from home, and we've won. So, you know, I'm, I'm, oh. I'm, 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 we're not complaining. I'm with you. Yeah, you know, I'm I think we, we have to put all that in, in the context, while at the same time, bit by bit, we're trying to understand what it is that Unai Emery is trying to do with the team, with the team selections, with the players that he's got in the team, what 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 they're supposed to be doing you know it's all not that we're running around in the dark or anything but there's so much to try and analyze that it's uh, i don't know if it's not that it's pointless but it's very difficult isn't it to try and just figure everything out it is we don't know him you know it's not like arson where we could kind of second guess his every move and he doesn't yet really have the ability to fully in detail explain exactly what's happening you know we can hear him talking about positioning on the pitch but the specificity of the language is probably still slightly beyond him so we are playing a bit of a guessing game trying to work out you know what happened in that half-term team talk what it is exactly that he wants 
out of these players. But don't get me wrong, I think, you know, I understand people feeling a little bit underwhelmed maybe by our start to the season. I think there was such an appetite for change that in some ways it could only disappoint. You know, expectations were so high of what a new man could bring that it's inevitable for it to feel a little bit like, oh, okay, well, there are Mm. still problems. We're still working through it. But that's just growing pains. And, you know, you talk about winning an away game in the Premier League coming off the back of an international break. I mean, I would have killed for that at times in the second half of last season. I think it's yeah. easy to forget that, how bad it got. Uh, you know, I've no doubt that had this game been in March, we would have found a way to not win it. Mm. Um, and we did win it. And, you know, while we're going through this process, and it's a, 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 and it's not an entirely pain-free process, I'm sure we will lose games along the way as well where the players don't get it right. But to pick up points along the way is important because we just can't afford to fall too far behind the likes of, you know, I mean, look at the points Chelsea are picking up, you know, who anticipated them hitting the ground running like this. So we need to stay in touch. We really do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you look at what's coming up now in the next couple of weeks. I think we have four home games, don't we? We've two, you wouldn't call them bankers because no home game in the Premier League is a banker or no game in the Premier League is a banker. And certainly, you know, given the fact that we are going through this uh, transformation or this process to whatever it is that Unai Emery wants, Everton and Watford have both been relatively tricky opponents down the years. So, you know, mm. we've got those two games in the Premier League. But what's interesting then is obviously the the, the Europa League and the Carabao Cup games coming up uh, against uh, Brentford and FC Vorskla uh, from they're from Ukraine aren't no they less. so we're yeah. going to see we're going to see a bit more of the squad now uh, with Unai Emery and what he's going to do with the with the Europa League because he surely has to to make changes and involve some of the guys who haven't yet been involved because he is going to need them in Premier League games too yeah, I mean, he's absolutely going to have to. We had a question about what would our, our Europa League team be. Do you want to chat about that now or should we save that for part two? Let's save that for part two, will we? We'll do that in, okay. in part two. Is there anything else from the weekend that you uh, want to touch on before we go into that? Uh, I mean, Spurs lost. That was good. Spurs lost. They're, you know, this was supposed to be, of course, the weekend that they opened their new stadium. <laughs> and said they, they lost at Wembley. Uh, I, I think that's... That's great for us. And obviously, you know, they're looking like maybe one of the teams, we sort of got our fingers crossed, they might be one of the top four teams that could be vulnerable this year. It doesn't look like Liverpool are going to be one of those teams. They look no. very good. Did you see that game? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't see any of it. I haven't seen Match of the Day yet either, but I saw the results. And obviously, you know, you can just look at the results. They could have won by significantly more right. actually, over the course of that match yeah they right. missed plenty of chances and, and Spurs' goal sort of came right at, the, right at the death there but yeah pleasing to see them lose and to be honest you know I, I had I had a nice Sunday today I went and had a, a roast and a few drinks and just I'm grateful for that you know there was a time last season where an away fixture was like well that's my weekend <laughs> ruined uh, so to be able to talk about it and not feel uh, angry and sad is just such a relief okay well there's a nice way to end part one and we will come back in part two with your questions and more right after this Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. Uh, this is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter, at Gunnar Blog and at Arse Blog, uh, and also on the Arse Blog Facebook page. When I remembered to post it there, and tonight I didn't. So apologies to uh, our Facebook friends. I forgot to do that. Uh, so we're, we're, we're straight off Twitter uh, tonight. So uh, shall we How get on? How worrying. How worrying indeed. Uh, shall we get on with <laughs> them? If I, yeah, let's do it. I mean, can I go first? Yeah, by all means. Thanks. Um, this question is from Gaz Arsenal, who's at Gaz underscore Arsenal. And we touched on it in the first half, but I wanted to ask you again. He says, what have you made of the much-coveted high press under Emery? Mm. He says, I don't think it's been as high or as pressy as I was expecting. Well, Am I not seeing yeah. it? Is it down to personnel? Or is Emery less aggressive with, with the press than Pep or Klopp? Um, yeah, I mean, that was something we spoke about a little bit in the first half. Or in the first half, yeah, in the first half, in the first half of the Newcastle game, I don't think we saw a great deal of it. Um, Have you seen it much at all this season? I mean, I know what Gaz is talking about. I mean, if I think yeah. back to the City game, it was pretty clear with Ramsey, wasn't it, that he was kind of he uh, was the leading the press. Yeah, exactly, absolutely, yeah, and that meant him playing beyond uh, Aubameyang at times. You know, really pressing right up as the furthest man forward. Mm. Since then. It's not been massively evident. Do you think it might be more evident against teams that you have less of the ball against? In that, you know, when you dominate possession in a game as you would normally expect Arsenal to do against West Ham, against Cardiff, against Newcastle, I'm not sure what the possession was in the end of the the uh, the Newcastle game, but it f- it feels to me like um, you know we would have had more of the ball against Newcastle mm-hmm. and there isn't necessarily the need to to win it back as as high up the pitch. I'm just going to look at the stats here. I'll just going to do the very it. same. I mean, while you look at that, I'll just say that if 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 we are executing the press as Emery is instructing, then it is a less aggressive version of it than the one mm. uh, practiced by Pep or Klopp because if you saw either 
Man City's game this weekend or Liverpool's game this weekend. Mm. You know, they are both teams who can dominate in possession, particularly City. I mean, who's better on the ball? Who has more of the ball than City? Probably nobody. But it's about the alacrity with which they win it back. You know, and they, it's their first goal against Fulham this weekend is a great example. You know, the way Fernandinho... Uh, for those who've seen it, closes down and intercepts the ball and they, they kind of make a goal out mm. of a, a full of mistake. Um, and we don't seem to capitalise sure. on those opportunities in the same way, but it's so, so early. It is so, so early. Yeah. You know, our sample size is so small, isn't it? And I wonder, is it a case that, you know, he's he's taking his time with implementing this part of the game you know, to get some other parts of our game right. But I don't know what mm. those parts are either. You know, we talked about possession in the in the first half, in particular against Newcastle, and how uncomfortable we looked. You know, we ended up with 63% possession to 36% possession. 84% pass success rate to Newcastle's 66% pass success rate. So... We're clearly doing something right in that sense. When the opposition has the ball, we can win it back. And when they have the ball, we're pressuring them into making more loose passes. Um, Mm. But it it doesn't feel to me like a genuine feature of the way we're playing. But then if you you were to ask me what, what is a genuine feature of the way we're playing, I would also say I don't quite know. I have a, I just feel like he's not that he's making it up as he goes along or anything like that. I don't think it's anything as, as silly as that. But just the fact that he is making halftime changes, you know, it does speak to me of him trying something and then deciding it isn't working. And and you know, I'm all for the decisiveness of making a change, particularly when you bring on someone like Torreira, who did have an impact against Newcastle. But it feels to me like he's feeling his way around the squad and who's yeah. who's who's capable of doing what he wants once we is know that what that is. is. Which is we it, don't. Is, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is the reason that the character of the team is so difficult to discern that what you've got is a team being asked to play in a certain way, full of personnel who perhaps aren't ideal mm. to do that. So you end up with a kind of halfway house, uh, yeah. which isn't the full realisation of Emery's vision. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't think when you're playing players out of position that you can really expect them to function as well as they should. You know, um, like if you were going to play a really high-pressing game, would you have Aubameyang on the left? And would you play Ozil on the right? Would you play Ramsey as as the 10? Or, or the would seven? you have Ozil in the team? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Or would you have more functional players who are more athletic, perhaps, or who yeah. are more capable of doing the running that you need to play that way? I don't know. I mean, is it? Do you feel like it's a case that he is trying to get his best players or what he perceives as his best players to play in the way that he wants? Or is he just trying to get those players into the team and slightly tweak the system around them? Because it seems more like the latter to me at the moment. Maybe he's compromising because he knows... Well, he doesn't know, but he feels he has to play Ozil. He has to play Aubameyang. But both players are ostensibly playing out of position at the moment. 
And I don't think either player is, you know, the the ideal player for Emery. For you know, if that if that if he if he said, you know, I'm going to pick my team. It's four two three one. This is my idea of what the wide players in that system look like. Yeah. I don't think it looks like either of those two players. I think the probably the closest player it looks like is Mkhitaryan. Mm. Yeah. Or Iwobi, potentially. Well, Iwobi but, was the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Mm. But he has, you know, faded out of the picture, hasn't he, somehow? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, 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 again, I think we just have to step back and give it a bit more time and then we can try and figure out what's going on in another five games or another five games after that. So uh, we'll wait and see, but I do take the point about the press. I don't really think it's a, a significant feature of the way we're playing right now. Maybe it will be. Maybe it will be, but we'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, Matthew Celentano wants to know, uh, or he says anyway, he says, I'm less worried about Aubameyang's lack of goals and more worried about his apparent inability to keep the ball. His touch and passing have looked off so far this season. How do we get the best out of him? He did have a few sticky moments, I thought, against Newcastle where he didn't look massively comfortable with the ball what I would say is that I felt like there were three occasions where potentially he might have scored so there was one in the first half where there was a good move it was sort of our only really I know it was one of two good moves in the first half and the way it happened was I think Ramsey played a ball into Lacazette on the halfway line he knocked it off for Urzo and he played a through ball that Aubameyang got onto with a diagonal run. Do you remember that one? Yeah. And, you know, he almost kind of got away. I can't remember actually how that move ended, but he, he got in behind at any rate. Then there was the one where Ramsey went down the left and should have squared the ball, so Aubameyang yeah. at the back post, but produced a terrible cross. And then there was the chance he had in the second half where yeah. Lacazette played it across the box and he kind of screwed it wide with a cross shot from the, the left-hand corner of the box. So for, my, for all my concerns about Aubameyang and, and, and about him playing on the left-hand side... It's not as if there weren't glimpses of, of opportunities for him yeah. in this game. Mm. I'm not sure he's ever going to be uh, a footballer in the respect that, obviously, he's a brilliant footballer. What I mean is a guy who's a dribbler, a guy who's like a, you know, a, a brilliant technician with the ball at his feet. I think he's much more about what he does off the ball, and I think he's a great finisher. Yeah. I mean, I, I've compared him in the past to sort of a higher calibre of of Theo Walcott. I'm not sure he... He's not like a Thierry Henry who would pick the ball up 40 yards out and dribble past three guys. I'm not sure that he's got that in his locker. And I'm not sure he ever has done. And it certainly was never a problem for him at Dortmund. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the, the question is, how do we get the best out of him? I think the obvious answer is you play him as a striker. But Lacazette brings a lot to the team and has brought a lot to the team in terms of his work rate, in terms of his ability to hold the ball up, his ability to bring others into play. You know, I think he's put in two really good performances in the last couple of games. And when he came on as substitute, you know, apart from that that moment in the Chelsea game, which didn't really work out, uh, I think it cost us the the goal. Um, You know, I think he's been really good. So he's sort of, he's, he's, earned his place there but I don't know I think I think the the obvious answer to to the Aubameyang thing is you play him as a forward so is it a case that if Lacazette has played himself into the centre forward position he needs to play and maybe you sacrifice Aubameyang to play somebody more suitable to that left hand side whether it's Mkhitaryan or whether it's Iwobi but then you're in the position where you've just spent 55 million pounds on a top top striker and you're playing him well, you're not playing him. 
it's a weird situation. I find the thing kind of weird. Yeah, and he's a big personality around the club and a, a big figure in the dressing room. And Emery, you know, maybe he's sensitive to those things. Maybe he, you know, he, he knows where he wants to nail his colours to an extent and maybe dropping Aubameyang isn't yeah. a smart move for him. I, well, mean, did, if you, I think if it had to be one, if you were saying you've got to play one of Lacazette or Aubameyang and you're picking the team tomorrow, I think there's a genuine conundrum there. I mean, I think it would be very difficult to leave Lacazette mm. out. Uh, given the way that he links the play. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think Aubameyang has ever quite really done that at Arsenal, and but, I'm not sure that is his game. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's I don't think it is his game. So if you're not going to play in a way that suits him, then Lacazette is your choice. But maybe when you have a player like that, with that kind of goal-scoring record, you need to adapt to him a little bit as well. It is a difficult mm. situation and, and he clearly uh, was not that impressed at being substituted and it was something yeah. Emery addressed after the game. He said, well, you know, I said what any manager would say, you know, what, what player does want to be substituted? I want them to be angry and maybe it will provoke a reaction out of him. Maybe it's his way of getting more out of Aubameyang, but I'm just not sure. I mean, does he just need to be more decisive when it comes to picking his striker? Maybe so. Maybe so. But it all it, all these selections are kind of contingent on others. So if you play Lacazette uh, as your centre-forward, then what you want from your wide player is someone who can run in behind. Uh, and Aubameyang is the closest thing we have to that, really. I mean, unless you count... Danny Welbeck. Whereas, if you if you play an Aubameyang as your centre forward, yeah. do you then want someone in that inside forward role who's maybe more of a creative player like an Iwobi or a Mkhitaryan? Mm. So, I, I just think if you do play Lacazette as your spearhead, you almost need Aubameyang to give you that alternative threat. Uh, but it doesn't maybe suit him the best. It's it's a real it's a real tricky thing, and it's a consequence of Arsenal basically buying two. Fifty million pound centre forwards who have very different styles in the in the space of six months. Yeah, and um, only playing one up front at any one yeah. time. Like if you're playing two strikers, if this was the old days, if this was a four four two era, and we had Lacazette and Aubameyang, we would not be uh, in any Happy days. Yeah, because you've got. Well, some would say the four four two era is coming back. I mean, there are plenty of teams in Europe playing a four four two. There are plenty of systems Emery could play yeah. that enable him to have two central strikers. Yeah, there are. But, he but doesn't think, it doesn't appear to be on the agenda, does it? No, it doesn't appear to be on the agenda. Well, look, I think it's something that will work itself out in time over the course of the season. We will see see how this one goes. But, uh, you know, I can understand the frustration of Aubameyang. You know, as one of the top strikers in Europe, you come to a club like Arsenal, uh, you know, the, the, the club record signing and... Under Arsene Wenger, you're shifted wide left. And under Unai Emery, you're shifted wide left as well. Now, maybe it's up to him to do more, but, you know, it's that it's that balance thing again. You know, are you going to get the best performances out of a central defender if you play him at right back? You're not. He can do a job. You're not going to get the best out of him. Slightly different as a forward, I know, but mm. there you go. Well, speaking of balancing teams, we touched on this. We said we'd come to this. It's oh, yeah. from Boris Zlatopolsky, who's at Bozaster on Twitter. And he says, what would be 
your starting Europa League team? Okay. Uh, I've Yeah, we have the same question from Niranjan Kulkarni, who's at Nisius 0004. And we also had a question from uh, Eric JVC, I think, who's at Will Tord. Um, he says, what the heck are we going to do about left back on Thursday night? Mm. I think what we're going to do is play Monreal because we don't have anybody else. Um, my team, let me think about what team. I, I think he's got to play Leno. He can't not play Leno, right? I agree with you. Okay. He's got to play Licksteiner because Licksteiner, you know, needs yeah. a game. I mean, he can play left back, but then what do you do with right back? So I yeah. think I think it will be Licksteiner at right back. I agree with you. I think he's got to play Rob Holding. Okay. Do you think he'll go for both the young centre-halves? Do you think he'll go Holding I'm and Mavropanos? not sure that he will. I don't think he will. I think he might play... I wonder, will it be Mustafi? I think it might just be Mustafi. I think it might be... I, I'm going to... For, just to be different, I'm going to say it's going to be Socrates and Holding. Mm, okay. Maybe, I mean, in fairness that will be a good way for him to have a look at that because we've seen Mustafi and Holding or he can see Mustafi and Holding if he goes and watches replays and stuff. So we've got yeah, Monreal. I just wonder if that might be in his mind. And I think he'll save Mavropanos because he's got the League Cup game the following week. Mm. I think he'll give him a game in that, but I don't think he'll play on Thursday. And yeah, it has to be Monreal, doesn't it? I mean, I'm just trying to run through the squad, think if there are any alternatives without going into the youth team. I don't think I mean, so. He, even Cohen Bramall is mm. injured, I believe. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think he's going to play Elneny. I, I mean, yeah, he, he needs some game time. I think he'll play Genduzi. Yeah, I think he will probably play Genduzi as well. And I think he will play Emil Smith-Rowe. Really? Yeah. Then I think he's going to play Iwobi, Mkhitaryan. And Danny Welbeck. And maybe Danny Welbeck up front, yeah. So I think that's what he will probably do. Because we do, it's Everton then, isn't it, on the Sunday? Everton on the Sunday. So it's, uh, it's... it's one of those games that, as much as he says, you know, the next game is the most important game, you can't not think about the, the upcoming Premier League game. So that would be my guess. chance he'll go, this is the time to give Lucas Torreira his first start? Or do you think you'll save him for Sunday? I, you know, there's a part of me that thought about that when I was thinking about the midfield. Mm. And it, it feels to me like he's really easing Torreira into action. So if he were to start him on Thursday, I don't think he would start him on Sunday. And if you were to ask me which game I prefer Torreira to start in, it would definitely be Sunday rather than the Europa League game. Yeah. So... I've got no reason to think this specifically, but I I wonder, is it a possibility that this Thursday's almost been earmarked for Torreira? You know, yeah, oh, he'll maybe. Start, he'll start the Europa League game. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be mm. surprised because, again, we don't quite know what's what's going on or the way that this guy operates well enough to 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 be unsurprised or surprised by anything. But, 
you know, we were all expecting Torreira to start not the last game and the game before the international break, and he didn't. And then when we don't expect him to start, if he starts him, it'd be like, okay, I, whatever, man, I can't figure you out. So, you know, do what you do. But I just feel like probably for the opposition and the, the, the other game that we have, it would be wiser. It just feels to me based on the impact that Torreira had and the impact that he might have on either of those two games, that it would be better to see him make an impact against Everton rather than play 90 minutes against a Ukrainian team you'd like to think we could, we could beat anyway. You know, that's my I think. I you're right. I mean, I, I, and initially listening to your team, I thought, Emil Smith-Rowe, that's quite a you know, big call to drop him in. But actually, if you're not playing Mesut Ozil or Aaron Ramsey, Alex Iwobi's probably, you know, it's only one of Iwobi or Mkhitaryan who could play that number 10 role. So... Emil Smith-Rowe, I think, has got a really good chance. And by all accounts, he was outstanding. I know it was only, you know, Coventry reserves the other day, but he had a great pre-season. So I would be excited to see him uh, if it does come to that. I was just wondering... Was it Coventry reserves? This is the checker trade trophy, yeah, right? So it's it was, not really reserves, is it? Well, they've they rested a lot of their first okay. team, apparently. Okay. Um, but they... Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, do you think, with Aubameyang having just the one goal this season and maybe struggling a bit for confidence and coming off early against Newcastle. Do you think there's any chance that Emery will go, look, this is a game he might be able to get a couple of goals and he'll be off and running? Do you mm. think he, might, could, he could put one of the big strikers in for this one? Maybe. I mean, he could play Iwobi where Smith-Rowe would play and yeah. bring Welbeck in as one of the wide guys with Mkhitaryan and play Aubameyang up front. Yeah, That's maybe. That's another option. It is another option. But I think, you know, you've got you've to look at these games as ways of Welbeck pushing for a start. You know, Mkhitaryan, they've got to, he's got to get them involved because this is a long season and we are going to need them in Premier League, not just Europa League. So I think he, he probably has to manage that part of the game or those players as much as he's, got, he's managing the, the Premier League players, if you like. You know, mm-hmm. not, to, not to set them apart that much. So I would be a little bit surprised if he played Aubameyang. I can see your logic, but I would be surprised. Just uh, touching on Smith Rowe there, I don't know if you saw, but over the weekend, another Arsenal youngster, Reese Nelson, uh, scored mm. his first senior goal on his on his debut in the Bundesliga. Yeah, came on for uh, Hoffenheim. I don't think they won in the end, did they? But uh, he did score Not a goal. Sure, actually. Yeah, good Decent little goal off his left foot. So, yeah, nice to see him make an impact there. I mean... Funnily enough, he probably would have been in contention for some game time in this in this one, but hopefully he'll get more regular football out in Germany. That might benefit him more. True. OK, um, this one comes from Al Wayne, who's at Al Wayne 75 and he says, what do you think the impact of Gazidis leaving will be on the club, both in the short and longer term? I did notice this over the, the course of my holiday, that, you know, the, this, this fucking thing is still ongoing. This transfer saga involving Ivan Gazidis is ongoing. It's uh, it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? At this point, that uh, you know, either yes. Gazidis hasn't addressed it properly yet, or the club haven't addressed it properly yet, and and that this is actually being allowed to happen. It feels to me like uh, Arsenal seem quite content for it to happen because they're probably. Uh, once KSE get 100% control, they've got their own plans for the board and for the chief executive and everything else. But it just seems a little unseemly that, that uh, you know, 
it hasn't been meaningfully meaningfully addressed by either Gazidis or by the club. He had that statement in the summer. Um, you know, my, my information a few weeks ago was that he was definitely going to be leaving. I think there's probably some factors behind the scenes that are complicating the timing of the departure rather than the departure itself. So... Yeah, uh, I mean, it, the stories while you've been away have suggested that it is closer to happening. I mean, it is annoying and it is uh, frustrating to see Emery having to talk about it in his press conferences and things like that. But what I would say is, you know, during the transfer window, because Edith had made himself such a big visible figure that uh, it felt maybe like more of a more of a loss. But now the season has started, I think... I don't know if it's just that Arsenal fans have grown a little bit tired of the story, but it feels like people are a bit more relaxed about the prospect now. Uh, I know you were never <laughs> particularly distraught, but uh, <laughs> to put it to put it lightly, but yeah, I do wonder if now that like actual football is happening, people are a bit more chilled out about the possibility of one of the suits going. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like I don't, you know, if he was completely brilliant at everything, then maybe we should feel unhappy at it. But no, I, I can't, I just can't uh, get that. There was an interesting thread from Swiss Ramble, wasn't there? Did yeah. you see this? I saw about, that, yeah. About Gazidis' uh, success or, or lack thereof sort of on the commercial front in his reign at Arsenal, which I think, you know, you'd have to go back and dig that out, but it, is, it will be on his Twitter timeline, Swiss Ramble, and it's, if you are worried about Gazidis going, this might give, make you think, well, maybe it, there's an alternative. Well, yeah, exactly. Isn't that, the, isn't that the measure of him? Not, what, not really what happens from a football point of view, but his, his job as chief, chief executive was to, to manage the business side of the club. And while we have increased our revenues, a lot of that has been down to TV. Um, so, look, I, I, I really think, and, and from what I've heard, that the Arsenal board in the not-too-distant future, or certainly in the medium term, will look quite a bit different than it does today because of KSE, because of the, the, the fact that they'll own 100%. They can make their own mm. appointments. They might appoint a different chairman. They might appoint a different chief executive. And if Ivan Gazidis wants to go to AC Milan, then then fine. It's the competency of the the executives they put in place. That's where we're kind of in the dark, isn't it? And then we yeah. don't know what the what the remit that those executives are going to be given is. In the KSE statement, they talk about Arsenal. They want Arsenal to compete for the Premier League and for the Champions League consistently, but they've got to show that. It's down to KSE to show that that's what they really want for this club. And the way that they can show that is via investment in the squad, proper investment in the squad. Um, and until we see greater evidence of their willingness to do that, you have to wonder, does it really matter who the chief executive is? I, you know that's that's where I am. Yeah, with I that. understand that. I, I think that the, my my concern about it is that he is the guy who ultimately hired Sven, hired Raúl, and played a part in hiring Unai, and so that this is a team who were ultimately assembled by him. And I just worry, I, you know, if if a chief executive comes in who doesn't 
gel with those people, you know, do you end up in a bit of a sticky situation? Yeah. That, that's my worry. Sure. Um, sure. You know, but then, you know, these guys, Sven and Raul, they're not even a year at the club, really. We're, we're still sort of scratching around in the dark a little bit about what exactly... We know we kind of know what their roles are and what they're supposed to do, but we, we don't have a lot to judge the, the, the quality of their work on yet, right? Mm. You know, it takes maybe two or three transfer windows, at least I was going to say seasons, but maybe it is seasons, before you can, before you can really judge the work that those guys are doing. Because a player comes out, and we all love a signing. When a signing happens, we all love the signing at the start. And then after a while, we go, actually, that guy, you know, he's not that good. Maybe he's not as good as we would have liked him to be. And that guy, he's definitely not that good. And, you know, the responsibility for those decisions lies with with the with the, the guy who's, who's, uh, who's done the deals, whether it's Raul or Sven or Ivan or whatever. I mean, remember Tottenham spending... Loads and loads of money. You know, they brought in all these uh, these uh, directors of football, didn't they? The Spanish guy and the Italian guy and the guy who used to work for us, Damien Camoli yeah. and all that kind of Camoli. stuff. And everyone was like, yeah, this guy's great. Baldini. He does this, that, and the other. And all, he, all they did really was just buy a load of pretty average players uh, that made sure Tottenham still haven't won anything. You know, so I, I, I'm just sort of... Whatever. If there's going to be changes, I'm I'm all right with a with a change. But I feel like the whole situation is bollocks. You know, I I feel kind of outraged that we're being drawn into a transfer saga over Ivan Gazidis. You know. Yeah. Like. Yeah, I know what you mean. The guy who talks a lot, talks very well, but when you look at the proof of his particular pudding. There's no pudding. Or but there's the no pudding. one else at Arsenal beyond Gazidis who would come out and clear this up. You know, it's on the it's on the owners now. It's on the owners to sort this out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But as you said, maybe it's in their interests for it to sort of drag out and have this slightly odd. I, I think there's a weird. Transition. I think there's a weird clause in Gazidis's contract. Maybe it's not a weird clause. Maybe it's a standard clause. I don't really do contract law, and I don't understand big business particularly well. But you know, he has to give twelve months notice unless there's a change in the structure or the ownership structure of the club, which you would imagine KSE taking 100% control is absolutely a change in the structure of the club, which might then free him from that 12 months of of uh, obligation, of a notice period. And it might well uh, mean Arsenal don't put him on any, any kind of gardening leave. You know, I, I, it might be that that's causing the problem and the delay, and you know, everyone's saying nothing because there's nothing to say until, until it happens. So, I, I, it's not helpful though, is it? It's not helpful because you know you want the person at the helm of the club to be focused on leading the club forward. I mean, you want them to already be working on the January transfer window, realistically, don't you? Yeah. Um, but it feels like. We've got a man there who who knows he's off, so it is uncomfortable. It is an uncomfortable fit for the time being. Mm. Uh, we had a couple of questions about the January transfer window. I know it's okay. very early for that. It is, but this one, oh, I've done it again. It's Gaz Arsenal again. He's two questions in one week. Gaz, you're a lucky man. 
Gaz says, is selling Ramsey in January more palatable, having seen the first five games under Emery, than it was in pre-season, given how unbalanced we look? Yes. <laughs> Short answer from you. It is, yeah. I mean, I, I think it is. Um, simply because I find it hard to see exactly how he and Ozil work together in the same team. One mm. guy has got a, a long, long contract and the other guy is unwilling to sign a new contract. And that's the, the reality of the situation that we have with those two players. So Ramsey being sold is more palatable in January based on what we've seen from Emery. Now, in five games' time, James, we could be sitting here and the idea of selling Ramsey is absurd yeah. because shit changes very quickly in football and Ramsey could have a couple of great games and we'd all be thinking, wow, we'd be lunatics. Why can't we keep him? This is crazy. Arsenal are terrible at managing their contracts, which they are, by the way. Um, but right now, at this moment in time, based on what we've seen from the first five games, if a big offer came in for Ramsey in January, I'd say go for it. You know, and I like Aaron Ramsey, and people give me a lot of stick for uh, even this weekend. I thought it was great. Uh, Andrew Allen did the player ratings on Arsblog News, and there was a guy in the comments going, oh, God, Arsblog, you always give Aaron Ramsey a, a much higher you know, mark than he should get. It's not even me. But, um, you know, I like Ramsey. But if, if, the, if the chance came to get a good amount of money in for him and reinvest, perhaps in a player that might suit the system better, I would be okay with it. Yeah. And I tell you what, George Bushell, who's at that guy, George B, uh, asked about the January transfer window. Cheeky move for Zaha in January, question mark. And <clears throat> I, I would I'll bang that drum. I will bang that drum yeah. for Wilfred Zaha. Yeah, I would. I don't know if you've... Oh, you haven't seen much of the day, but his goal he scores this weekend is unbelievably good. Is it? And, yeah, like he just picks up on the left-hand side, beats a couple of players, bends it in the far corner, and they kicked him all day. Uh, it was Huddersfield. Okay. And I just think, when I look at our attack and I look at the qualities we do have and the ones we don't, I think we could afford to lose a player like Ramsey if it meant gaining a player like Zaha. Someone with real dribbling ability and, you know, the quality to go to the line and speed. I mean, it would cost you more money than we would pay, but... Uh, Didn't he, he just sign a new list. deal? Didn't he just sign a new deal? He then? did sign one in the summer, but presumed, apparently it's sort of on the understanding that he will go sometime in the next 12 months. OK, I'm going to try and find the goal here. Oh, here. Oh yeah, see if you can. He's a great guy. Oh. Hang on, here it is. Oh, I'm to see it. Oh. Okay. Good goal. And he scored, I think, I think it's something like seven or eight in his last ten. I mean, of course, there's the whole thing of he went to United, he didn't work out at United. But I think he's 25 now. I think he's a very different player. I think he would stay in London, which I think would be massive for him. Uh, and I just think he ticks a lot of boxes in terms of what we need. So there you go. I mean, that's my sort of 
if you're going to lose a player like Ramsey, I think you've got to bring in someone else good. And I, I think mm. that's quite telling, isn't it? That it would you wouldn't replace Ramsey like for like. You'd want something different, I think. Yeah. I'd forgotten completely he went to Manchester United. Yeah. We were in for him at that time, weren't we? And then mm. backed off. He went to United. It didn't pan out at all. He, I think Fergie signed him and then and then quit, essentially. Because so, I think he signed in January to join at the end of the season. And then he never really got anywhere under David Moyes and went back to Palace and has subsequently blossomed. But yeah, yeah. I mean, he he's does, a player that does divide opinion. But he does I like look it. good, all right. But it feels to me like Zaha might be a more of a replacement in the squad for someone like Danny Welbeck than Aaron Ramsey. Maybe, but I suppose what I'm saying is that if you've got Ramsey and Ozil and you have to lose Ramsey, I think what we're talking about is maybe mm. it's Ozil who takes over from, in that respect. And what we don't have in the squad is what I would call proper wide, proper wingers, say, let's say. Yeah, but do we play with proper wingers? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Emery doesn't. I mean, if you look back historically at his teams, it'd be interesting to know. I mean... He, I think it was he who sold Lucas Moura from PSG to Tottenham. Mm. And Lucas Moura is a a classic winger. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how often Emery's sides have had them in. Yeah. Mm. OK, well, look, we'll see. Uh, here's a question from Matt Tibbetts, who's at Magic Sam. He says, what's the thing you're enjoying most about our new era and enjoying least? What am I enjoying most and what am I enjoying least? I think... Uh, this is quite a bad answer, so apologies in advance, but I think the thing I am enjoying most is the novelty, is the not knowing, yeah. um, the fact that every game is kind of an education in that respect. You know, you find out stuff about the team, the manager, the way we're playing. It is unfolding before our eyes, and I think that's... Mm. After, a, you know, for so long it felt like the club had gone a bit stale, and I think our experience as fans had gone a little bit stale but now it's like new information all the time new impetus and that's really exciting um i think what am i enjoying least <sighs> i don't know you know i know what I, I i i agree with you on the what i'm enjoying most is the fact that we don't know exactly yeah. what's going on or what sort of team he's going to pick or how he's going to do it and, and we are watching and, and learning, as you say. The thing I'm enjoying least is our football. <laughs> like, I'm, I've enjoyed yeah. the wins, but, you know, I haven't really enjoyed the way that we've played in in many of the games. Um, mm. Even with the context, and I, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, it's Emery out or anything like that. I'm just being honest about how I felt watching us play. It hasn't been that enjoyable to watch us play. I like it when we win. I enjoy it when we take three points, of course. But the games have felt a bit of a chore, and maybe that's what we have to go through as well as fans. As the team goes through the process, as we learn to put into practice what Unai Emery wants... The offset of that is that we're having these functional rather than exciting or exhilarating or dominant performances. So that's kind of what I'm enjoying least, I think. I think that's a good answer. I, I, I mean, I am enjoying the starts of the season. That's the thing. There's so much about it that I find uh, positive and refreshing. I think just the change itself mm. uh, is, is a huge thing for me. But... 
Yeah, I would, I would have to agree. Like, the football we're playing isn't great. And I suppose what I'm enjoying least is maybe th- there's a nagging part of me, a sort of creeping thought that we feel very Europa League. We feel very Europa League mm. in a lot of respects. Yeah. And I I guess I kind of... Uh, I had a sort of hope that, you know, somehow magically we would feel like a Champions League team again. But we we don't magically feel like we, that. We've got a way to go to get there again, I think. Yeah. 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 Have you got Just one more? I tell you what, this isn't really a proper question, but I did like this. Friend of the show, uh, Ian Stone, asked... Is the reason Torreira doesn't start matches because he's turning up chronically late? And then uh, <laughs> that was just a little joke for me. But then someone underneath has asked, "Is this a joke or do you know something, Ian?" Wow, he's <laughs> always he's always late for training. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea. Like, do you know something? What do you know? Tell us. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if I do have any more other questions beyond that. Let me have a little look. They were all around similar things that we've discussed. Lots about Ramsey. Uh, pressing uh-huh. okay here's no, one one final one to finish us off given that it is the end of the show and this uh, uh, question is apparently for the end of the show uh, it's from Matty Turchich who's at Matty Turchich uh, who says hi long time Argentinian fan here so it's probably Tursich sorry Matty uh, he says uh, you, you can choose one a pill that gives you the perfect haircut and you never have to go to the barber again or a pill that stops you from sweating for the rest of your life. Uh, it's well, it's really easy for me because I would love more hair than I have, and mm. I'm not particularly sweaty. So I'm happy to keep sweating the amount I'm sweating. It's not causing me any issues. No rashes are developing. <laughs> well, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, that, that's how I know I'm eating something spicy. The top of my really? head starts to to sweat. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not saying I never sweat. I mean, I, th- yeah. I think that would be dangerous. But I just, you know, you would be I'm a able pig. To keep cool. You, I would be a pig. They don't sweat. How does it all get out through their nose? I don't know. We should find out. But uh, dogs don't dogs sweat don't because, sweat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How do they manage it? But I think, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm unclear about the pill. Is it like I have to take it? every day to keep the hair like that or is it I just take it once and the next day I wake up with a perfect haircut oh no I think you'd have to take it every day every to day it. yeah exactly I think it would be only fair that you would have to you'd have to maintain some measure of of consistency in order to keep sure. that haircut and if but you didn't take it one day a big chunk of it would fall out until you took it for 30 days and it grew back. I think that would be... But regular listeners to the show won't be surprised to know I'm on heaps of medication already just to keep me alive. So <laughs> adding another pill into that mix, into that delicious cocktail that I have to take every day isn't going to change anything. So yeah. uh, I'm definitely going with the pill. What are you going for? Uh, I think I'd go with the pill as well. You know, uh, as, uh, as somebody who's often had hair envy, like I think my, my favourite hair in the entire world... Like, uh, is John Hamm from Mad Men, but oh, in this yeah. film, Baby Driver. I don't know if you've seen that film. Yeah, I have seen the film. Yeah, it's okay. I, it's I not a great film, but his hair. It's a strange film, actually, yeah, in some ways. It is. It is. I'm just Googling John Hamm, Baby Driver. That's a good haircut. Yeah. That is good hair, isn't it? I mean, maybe you also have to have the face of John Hamm to carry off that hair. But if yeah. there was a pill powerful enough for that, yeah, I I'd take it. it. I take it. It's that's good hair. It's much yeah, better hair than I've ever had in in my life. 
<laughs> hey, don't worry about it, man. You've got lots of other things going for you. <laughs> I don't sweat. No, I do sweat. Shit, I'm not a pig. Oh, shit. Or a yeah. dog. <laughs> I'm not a pig dog. Or a dog pig. Anyway. We, uh, I think, should leave it there, James. It's Sunday yeah. evening. It's probably time for bed. And um, we have got a Europa League game on Thursday at home. Mm-hmm. So that will fuck around with the Arscast schedule for Friday. But we'll definitely have something on Friday at some point for you. Um, until then, take it easy. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Please give us a rating or a review on iTunes. We would love that. Um, and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.